Well, if Lehman Strauss was here, he would say, before we look at the Word of God, let us talk to the God of the Word. Father, we thank you that you have given us great riches in the Word of God. Truths that we could mine for a lifetime and yet not fully understand, comprehend, or even appreciate. How wonderful your Word is. How incredibly timeless it is. Lord, we stand tonight on your word as a people, believing it is the inerrant, inspired, authoritative word of God without any mixture of error. It doesn't just contain truth. It is the truth. There are not parts of it that are true. It is all true. And Lord, we surrender ourselves before the authority of your word as I pray we do every time we teach a Sunday school lesson and every time we preach the Word and every time there's a Bible study in this church that we surrender to the authority of your Word in our lives. You overrule anything we think or anything we believe that is contrary to your Word. And Lord, I pray that you would take the truths of 1 Timothy. Lord, that you would give me the ability to communicate those truths. And then you would give us the heart and the passion to apply them as we let the God of the Word put the Word of God in our hearts and minds. For it's in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 1. <clears throat> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now, let me just say a word there about why that is important. The word means legitimate. Timothy's father was Greek. His mother was Jewish. By Jewish law, Timothy would have been considered an illegitimate child. Paul says, you're legitimately, truly, genuinely my child in the faith. He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus are what we know as the pastoral epistles. They were given that title about four or five hundred years after they were written. Paul did not write them to be pastoral epistles as much as he wrote them to a pastor who was his young protege in the faith, and he was encouraging him in his walking in his faith as a pastor. And he gave this to Timothy to give to the church. It is in these letters that we find the biblical philosophy for offices of deacon and the office of pastor and the structure of a church. He talks about ministry to widows, all the things that a church is supposed to be about. Now the problem that happens as time goes on from any original letter in the scriptures is even shortly after Paul wrote this letter, people tried to do other things than what the Word of God told them to do. And so it is important for us to always go back to truth rather than tradition to find out what God wants us to be. I love what John Calvin said. Uh, John, uh, John Calvin didn't say this. Charles Spurgeon said this. Spurgeon said, if you ask me, I am a Calvinist. If you ask me my denomination, I am a Baptist. But if you ask me my heart, I am a Christian. It is important for us that we remember that we are called to be Christians and biblical thinkers more than we are ever called to be Baptists. Now, there are some Baptist distinctives that we hold dear. 
But our first priority is to make sure that we're biblical. And if Baptists so choose to move off of the biblical standard as we were moving in the late 60s, then we must depart from that expression of the faith to stay true to the faith. And so the Word of God gives us the spiritual opportunities that we have. And in the middle of those spiritual opportunities come some satanic obstacles. And there are obstacles that are coming in on young Timothy as he pastors this church. Now you've got to know that this was a hard church for Timothy to pastor. First of all, Paul pastored it for three years and then left it to Timothy. How would you like to follow Paul? I mean, it was hard enough for me to follow Brother Billy. How'd you like to follow Paul? <laughs> I mean, Paul pastored it for three years. Here's Paul. He stands up to anybody. He'll stand up to anything. And here's timid Timothy. He's got a little stomach problem, gets a little queasy, and he's not real sure, and he's getting kind of more... You know, he says, man, I, I want to leave. I, Paul, I'll just go with you. And Paul says, I urge you to stay and remain on at Ephesus. Now, this is a tough town to pastor in. Because Ephesus is the center of the worship of the goddess Diana. And all kinds of sexual promiscuity is going on. And so Paul writes to Timothy and he says, What I tell you, you tell the church. Now why is that important? It is important because an informed pastor and an informed people impact a society. When we know what God wants us to do, and we know why God wants us to do it, then we begin to impact the society. Now there is an, under the introduction, there is an outline there, and I want you to just kind of follow this outline with me a little bit if you can. First of all, you see in chapter 1, this is a message. Now there is no such thing as the outline of Scripture. Warren Wiersbe talked about that this past week in Jude. There are suggested outlines. This is a suggested outline of Timothy. Every commentary will outline it in some slightly different way, but this is just a suggestion. Chapter 1 is the message, and he talks there about the teaching and the proclaiming the doctrine and defending the faith. Chapter 2 is addressed to the members. Now, in chapters 1 and 2, we have the work of the ministry, what we're to be about. See, Paul is not just talking about what we're to do. He talks about how we're to do it. He gives us the product and the process what we do, how we do it. And so in chapter 1, he tells us to persevere. And the key word is be true. In chapter 2, he tells us to protect. And we're to protect. There's a global concern in verses 1 through 7. There's a functional concern. There are men in their prayers, women in their adornment. And boy, some of you can't wait for me to get to women in their adornment. But uh, we'll get there next week, in fact. Uh, there's to protect and it is to be concerned. Now that's the work of the ministry. But in chapters 3 and 4, he talks about the minister. And he lists three, elders, deacons, and believers. And he talks about the characteristics of those people who are ministers. This is the person in the ministry. The work of the ministry, the person in the ministry. The key word there is to provide and to be discerning in ministry. Chapters 5 and 6, he talks about the ministry. The older, the younger, the widows, the elders, the servants, false teachers again, the Christian poor, the man of God, and the Christian rich. And what he says there is we are to promote. And if you want to circle the last little phrase, be faithful, that is the key phrase in all the book to me because 17 times in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, Paul uses the word faithful. Are we a faithful church? Are we faithful to what God has said for us to be? Now, if you'll notice the quote by Swindoll there, without these three pastoral epistles, the church would be lacking the moorings it needs to stand against strong, manipulative personalities, detrimental politics, and subversive heresies. We are to be faithful to two things, to the Word and to the work. We are to be faithful to the word that God has given us, and we are to be faithful to the work that God has given us. Now, why was it written? Number one, to warn about false teachers. To warn about false teachers. He does that in verses 3 and 4. That's where he begins to introduce that. Notice that he uses the term strange doctrines. 
Uh, John Bassanio wrote an excellent book a number of years ago called Strange Doctrines. It's been out of print for a long time. In fact, he sold it when he, when he was here. You ought to go back and read it because what it deals with is doctrines and teachings that come not out of an honest study of Scripture but out of speculation. The word strange doctrines means that which is different from what Jesus taught or from what the disciples and the apostles taught. Now, if you ever notice the phrase in Scripture, the faith or the truth, definite article in front of, not just faith or truth, but the faith and the truth, what is referring to, it's referring to the accepted body of teaching of Jesus and of the disciples to the church. And Paul says there are people that have departed from the accepted body of teaching. In fact, in Galatians, Paul says that they are following a different gospel. In Corinth, he talked to them about they were led astray to a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. Now, when the Scripture talks about the faith, it is talking about that body of doctrine established and agreed on by all of those who were alive who had seen and heard from Jesus, the apostles. Now, first of all, he's saying these people have departed from the faith, from the truth. He's warning about false teachers. The second thing he's doing is instructing Timothy in his personal conduct. He's instructing Timothy in how he should conduct himself in ministry. Key phrase there is in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And the third thing he's doing is encouraging Timothy to educate and edify the church, chapter 4 and verse 6. He's encouraging him to educate and edify the church. Now, what's in it for believers today? Number one, it is a reminder that truth is more important than tradition. It is a reminder to us that truth is more important than tradition. You see, we like to talk about rules and God likes to talk about righteousness. We like to talk about committees and God likes to talk about character. You see, God wants us focused on truth. Well, what we've always done doesn't always mean it's always right. I mean, if you were raised to not respect authority and you've always done it and that was a tradition in your family, is that a right tradition? Absolutely not. Now, if it's a good tradition, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with tradition. I mean, every denomination, every church has some traditions. And not all tradition is wrong, but you cannot exalt tradition above truth. You have to say that the standard for what the church does is truth. And so it's a reminder to us that truth is more important than tradition. Secondly, it is a reminder that success in God's eyes is diametrically opposed to success in the world's eyes. Now this will sound kind of strange from somebody who believes that we ought to grow a great church and ought to grow a big church. But you see, God doesn't judge by size. He judges by sort. You see, you can have a big church, and when God judges that church, it's wood, hay, and stubble. And you could have a church that is true to the Word of God, and somehow it just looks small because it's gold, silver, and precious stone, but which one can endure the judgment and the fire of God? There are some churches that will sell their souls to baptize people. Now, quite honestly, we could baptize a lot more people than we baptize if we followed a typical Baptist tradition. And that is, it doesn't matter if you've been immersed before or not. It doesn't matter if your immersion was after your salvation. If you weren't baptized by a Southern Baptist, you have to be baptized again. We don't do that. If a person confesses faith in Jesus Christ, if they believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, that baptism does not save you, they were immersed and they followed that baptism was a following of their confession of faith in Christ. We accept that baptism. Now, some Baptist churches don't. And they'll baptize 30 or 40 extra people a year because they won't accept an immersion baptism. Listen, it's just water. It's just symbolic. And if we give it more power than God gave it, if it gives power to save, it's wrong. And success in God's eyes is by what God led us to do and if we were faithful in doing what God led us to do. Number three, the third reason it's important, it's a reminder of how God has established the church and her leaders to function 
for ultimate success. How the church and the leaders are to function for ultimate success. Now, what are the central truths? Number one, education. In verses 3 through 11, Paul says we are to teach the Word. Now, turn to the very back and look at the three questions because I want you to read these questions and as we go through this part of the message, I want you to keep going and thinking of these questions in your mind. Are we a biblically authentic church in Bible study and teaching ministry? Is your Sunday school class teaching the Word of God without apology? Am I a student of the Word? Do I study the Scriptures on my own and know what the Word says? Am I spoon-fed or do I feast on the meat of the Word? Those are questions that I want you to answer. First of all, education, teach the Word. Now notice, we are not given the privilege. If you teach Sunday school, by preacher from this pulpit, whoever stands behind this pulpit, we are not given the privilege of watering down the Word of God or of doctoring it up. We don't have that right. And anybody that exercises that right is a false teacher. We are to teach the Word of God without apology. Now, here's why this is just my humble and accurate opinion, which I highly respect. Here's why I think a lot of Baptist churches get in trouble and why there are wars today over worship instead of over what the church is teaching. I mean, I know churches are having battles about worship and they got pastors that don't even believe the Word of God. The bigger issue is the Word of God, not whether or not you sing a chorus or not. It's a whole lot bigger issue if the pastor doesn't believe in the virgin birth and the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ than what songs you sing. That is a bigger issue. Let me tell you why I think we're in trouble in our churches. Because we have people who have sat under the Word of God, but they've never been in it for themselves. They sit under and they hear and they listen. I, I've got folks... That, that I know that I could put them in a church where the guy didn't believe the first 11 chapters of Genesis and he didn't believe in the physical resurrection and they could listen to that person and they could go over here and listen to somebody who was an independent Baptist and a hellfire and damnation preacher and they would know that they believed two different things. The responsibility of the church is to teach the Word of God so that you are able to discern and understand there is a plumb line, there is a standard, there is something that we cannot compromise, and that is teaching the Word of God. Let me ask you a question. Are you under the Word but not in it for yourself? Do you enjoy coming and listening to Ron Dunn and Layman Strauss? And You know why those people could teach like they can teach? I'll tell you why, because they're in the Word. They're not depending on somebody else to feed them all that they get. They're learning how to feed themselves. And you're never going to be what you need to be as a believer if you don't learn how to study to show yourself approved unto God. First thing is we are to teach the Word. Now, Paul predicted five years earlier that savage wolves would come. Remember, he said that in the book of Acts. And they would devastate the flock. Five years earlier, he said, they're coming. Now he says to Timothy, they're here. They were coming, and now they're here. Notice in verse 8. They want to be teachers of the law. Now, verse 8 implies that there is a right and wrong use of the law, and there is. Now, he says they want to teach legends and fables and myths and genealogies, which were alternatives to the truth. Now, I do not believe... There's speculation about who these false teachers were. I do not believe they were the Judaizers. There's not an indication that these were the people who said you got saved by keeping the law. Those were the folks that opposed Paul at Galatia. But these are speculators. When I try to decide and figure out and study who these people are, they were allegorizers, they were speculators. How many of you, when you were growing up, went on a snipe hunt? How many of you got suckered into that? <laughs> Boy, there's snipes out in those woods. Really? Yeah, you got to take a tin pan to get them, too. Yeah. Beat on that tin pan to get those snipes. These were snipe hunters. They were speculators. 
they'd get out and say, they'd find some obscure verse in the law and they'd build some doctrine and some theology around it. By the way, just a word of warning. A lot of TV prosperity gospel preachers do the same thing. They take a verse of Scripture out of context and they build a truth on it and that truth will not stand on that verse. They'll take a part of a verse, they'll slice it in the middle, they'll cut it off at the end, they'll pick it up at the beginning, and they will build some kind of truth on that. That's why you have to know the Word of God to know when somebody's telling you the truth. Listen, I hope that when I preach, you study the Word of God and you know it well enough to know whether I'm telling you the truth or not. I'm not threatened by you studying the Word of God to find out if I'm telling you the truth. I hope you're not just sitting there going, brain open, insert message, shut the door. I want you to know the truth. I want you to study the truth for yourself. And one of the goals of the Bible is that we are to teach the Word of God, not conjecture. Now, two consequences of false teaching. First of all, it obstructs faith. It obstructs faith, which promotes controversy. Paul said in verse 5, the goal of our instruction is different from controversy. It's of a good conscience and a sincere heart. So if you've got false teaching, it obstructs faith and promotes controversy. The second thing it does, it obstructs love and promotes speculation. It obstructs love and promotes speculation. You see, speculation raises doubt. Revelation raises faith. When there's speculation, there's all kind of doubt. When there's revelation, there's faith because we find that the Word of God is true. Now, just real simple. We receive the Word by faith, and we build up the church by love. And how do we do that? We do that by teaching this book, which tells us that God loves us, and because God loves us, He sent His Son, and He also gave us Scripture so we could know about His Son. Now, I'm not going to take time to go over these, but Martin Luther and John Calvin both gave threefold purposes, uh, legitimate purposes for the law. I, I like Calvin's description. It is punitive to condemn sinners and to drive them to Christ, which, by the way, until you can't be converted until you're convicted. Until you know you're a sinner, you can't be saved. Number two, it is a deterrent to restrain evildoers. And number three, it's educative to teach and exhort believers. You know why we need boundaries? Because we're trespassers by nature. Posted, keep out. Not me. I'm going to hunt on this land. I know it says posted, but that doesn't mean me. We have signs and warnings and boundaries in our society because all of us are lawbreakers by nature. Now, in verses 9 through 11, he gives us the words related to lawbreakers. And I want to go through these very quickly, and I'll just make a quick comment on each one. First of all, he groups this first set, these first six he groups in pairs. And these have to do with our duty to God. First of all, he says they are lawless and rebellious. In other words, no self-control. That those who would teach and use and manipulate the Scriptures have themselves no self-control. The law is not meant, he says, for the righteous, but the law is meant to let lawbreakers know that they've broken the law. Lawless and rebellious, ungodly and sinners, they dishonor God. The ungodly and sinners dishonor God with their lives. Thirdly, they are the unholy and profane. That means they are devoid of reverence. There is no reverence for God. Devoid of reverence, the unholy and profane. Now, the next five, the, these first ones, have to do with we have no respect for God. Okay, The lawless, the rebellious, the ungodly, the sinners, the unholy, and the profane have no respect for God, and it shows up in their lifestyle. Now, these next five refer to our relationship with other people, and I'm just going to give you what they do. First of all, those who kill their fathers and mothers. That's the breaking of the fifth commandment. All of these deal with the breaking of commandments given by God. The murderers break the sixth commandment. The immoral men and homosexuals break the seventh commandment. The kidnappers, NIV says slave traders, the kidnappers break the eighth commandment, which is thou shalt not steal. 
And the liars and perjurers break the ninth commandment, which is do not bear false witness against your neighbor. So what's Paul saying? Paul's saying that the moral standards of the gospel and the law don't contradict themselves. There's not a contradiction between a right interpretation of the reason for the law and a right interpretation of the gospel. The law lets us know we need the gospel because we can't live up to the law. And so Paul is giving us, first of all, that we are to teach the Word and to teach it properly. These people were speculating and they were abusing the law of God for their own purposes. Now, second purpose, the second central truth, the second reason why the church needs to exist is evangelism. Verses 12 through 17, we are to win the lost. Now, folks, to be honest with you, there are a lot of churches that are evangelical that are not evangelistic. To win the lost. And you can go to churches where the Bible is taught and the authority of Scripture is stood on, but they don't have a passion to win lost people. We could be just a Bible-teaching church, and that's a good kind of church. But you have to add to that that if I study the Bible, then the Bible puts a burden in my heart that lets me know that men and women are lost and without Christ, they will spend eternity in hell, and I need to do something to try to rectify that problem by sharing my testimony. And so that's what Paul does. Let's pick up in verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful putting me into service. Now, verse 13 is a before salvation statement. This is Paul's testimony. This was before I was saved. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, that means he spoke evil of Christ. He didn't believe that Christ was the Messiah. And a persecutor. Remember, Paul tried to destroy the church. And a violent aggressor. Now, now this word violent aggressor is hybristus. H-Y-B-R-I-S-T-E-S. It is an incredible word. And, and I did not, I had read this and read this, but until I studied it and realized what it said, you know what hybristus means? It means a verbal abuser. I was verbally abusive. Let me just give you the long definition of it because it's a pretty incredible definition. It means a mixture of arrogance and insolence that finds satisfaction in insulting and humiliating other people. Paul said, I found great satisfaction in my arrogant state and in my insolent state in insulting and humiliating Christians. He was referring back, I think, to the persecution and to the death of Stephen. He found great satisfaction in spitting out words against Stephen for him dying for the faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, I was verbally abusive of Christians. That was before I was saved. Now, salvation came, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly and unbelief. Paul said, I didn't know what I was doing. I thought I was standing up for right. I thought I was standing up for God. I didn't know I was doing this. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. That word is a picture of the grace of God was overflowing its banks. It was flooding out everywhere. It was overflowing its banks and with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Now, let me just make a statement about this. The gospel is not failing in America today because we lack an audience. The gospel is failing in America today because we lack conviction that people are lost. We, we talk everybody into heaven that we see that's dead. We get so relieved when we read an obituary and say, boy, they were a member of a church. That's not going to get them into heaven. See, the gospel's failing today, not because people don't want to be saved. It's because we don't want to tell them how to be saved. We want to leave it up to Billy Graham to do it. Well, his days of doing that are short. We've started a, a renewal of our evangelism ministry on Monday nights. Randy is working with some folks, and they're going out and visiting people and talking to folks about personal relationship with Jesus Christ and you can learn how to share your faith in this church and be effective and able to communicate. Remember 1 Peter says we're supposed to be able to give an answer when we're asked. Now by the way, if you say I can't ever do that, 
All you got to do is take verses 12 through 14 and write your personal testimony based on those verses. Here's what I was before I was saved. God showed me mercy and His grace overflowed to me and because God saved me, it's made a difference in my life and I want to tell you how God can save you. Now, quite honestly, the best evangelists are laymen. You know, I've, I've been on, especially when I was flying to the Foreign Mission Board and, and on my trips up, usually on a trip back I'd sit by a Foreign Mission Board trustee and we'd always talk about the board business, but flying up I usually had to, had to fly by somebody, you know, I had to fly by a pagan. And uh, you always hope you're not the only Christian on the plane, you know, when you're doing that. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I'd get out something I'd read and stuff and sometimes somebody would say something like, uh, uh, what do you do for a living? think, oh, great. I said, I'm in communication. <laughs> he said, what do you do? Oh, I, I teach. Really? What do you teach? The Bible. The Bible? Are you a preacher? I want to tell you, if you want to turn somebody off, tell them you're a preacher. Hi, I'm the pastor. Slam. Now, folks, you see, we get paid to be good. You're good for nothing. <laughs> Just kidding, don't... Verse 15. <laughs> Verse 15, this is the first of five such statements that Paul will use in 1 Timothy. It is a trustworthy statement. You can take this to the bank. It's a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. This is a summary of the gospel. It's a sentence testimony. You can take this to the bank. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst sinner that ever lived. By the way, if you don't believe you're the worst sinner that's ever lived, you've never really seen your sin the way God saw it. Because God thought your sin was bad enough that He had to send His Son to die for your sin. Not for anybody else's, for yours. Now, the law condemns, the gospel saves. And so there is a universal application. It is deserving full acceptance. And what, what Paul's saying is everybody needs to know this. Everybody needs to know it deserves full acceptance by everybody everywhere. It's a universal truth with a personal application. I am the foremost. I'm the chief of all sinners. You see, you have to take the truth that Jesus Christ died to save sinners and you have to apply it to your life and I need the salvation that Christ gives. D.O. Moody said, Lord, save the elect and elect some more. The scripture says, whosoever will may come. Now, we could get into all kind of debates about limited atonement and all those kind of things and debating Arminian and Calvinism and a lot of people want to get in those kind of debates. I really try not to, try not to get in those debates. I follow Ron Dunn's school of thought. What do you want me to believe so we'll stop this argument? Because <laughs> I, I can flex with you either way. Here's my question. Whether you believe that Every, only those who are elect will be saved. Whether you believe in Calvinism, whether you believe in Arminian approach, the only question I got is, are you telling anybody? Not what man-made structure do you believe, but are you telling anybody that they can be saved? Because you don't know who the elect is anyway. So are you telling anybody? Are you sharing with somebody that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and I was a big one? Say, man, I wasn't a big sinner. I got saved when I was five years old. <laughs> yeah, but you stole that gum out of your mother's purse. <laughs> you can make that into a big testimony if you want to. Number three, education, evangelism. Number three, apologetics. We are to defend the faith. Be prepared to give an answer, verses 18 through 20. 
According to the Barna Research Group, the average Christian in America cannot answer the most basic questions about their faith. We've come to have the ability to stutter in about 35 different languages. And if we're going to be the people that God wants us to be, we cannot keep using terms like, I don't know. Call the pastor, he'll answer the question. And we need to learn how to defend our faith. I'm going to tell you something, folks. The Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses know how to defend their faith. How can we who have the truth know less than people who believe a lie? What a mockery of the gospel of Jesus Christ that somebody that you're scared of somebody knocking at your door because you're scared they're going to ask you a question that you can't answer because you don't know your Bible well enough to deal with them. And I'm talking about people that have been saved for 5 and 10 and 15 and 20 and 30 and 40 years and scared to death of somebody knocking on their door because they know more than we know. How can we say we have the truth when we don't even know what we believe? We are to defend the faith. Now, I'll just give you another little insight from Warren Wiersbe. <clears throat> don't let them in the door. I'd never thought about this. You know, I always thought what you're supposed to do is just smack them over the head with a Bible and send them on. Preferably a Gideon Bible, uh, because then you can get it replaced, the one you stole out of the motel. Uh, but, you know, I, I learned something this past week from, from Dr. Wearsby, and that's simply this. If you let them in your door to talk to them, they will go down the street and say, you know, I was just at the cat's house, and we had such a nice visit. Could I come in? And they say, oh, you mean from Sherwood? Well, they let you in. Well, sure, just come on in. And they'll use your name to sell a lie. If you're going to meet them and you see them coming, go out to your mailbox and talk to them. Don't invite them in. In fact, Paul says in another passage, avoid foolish arguments. See, until a person knows their loss, they can't be saved. And they know more about what they believe than you know about what you believe, and you're probably going to lose that argument and be confused by it. When I lived in Kansas City, the Mormons used to always come and knock on the doors on Sunday morning. And they'd knock on the doors between 9.30 and 11.30 in the morning. And here's what they'd say. They'd say, we're from the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, and we'd like to come in and talk to you. And people would say, well, oh, I'm a Baptist or a Methodist. And here's what they'd say. Well, your faith must not mean much for you. You would be at church this morning, so why don't you let me tell you about a faith that does mean something to get up for? Do you know that people tell us that the number one source of converts for cult groups is the church? It's the evangelical church because we don't know how to defend our faith. Now, let's talk about the characteristics of today's Christians, and we're going to have to listen fast because y'all aren't going to be patient much longer. <clears throat> characteristics of today's uh, Christianity, what the danger is of not teaching sound doctrine. Number one, moral relativism. Moral relativism. There are no absolutes. The world today believes there are no absolutes. There's no absolute truth. <laughs> well, I believe there is. I believe there's a heaven and a hell. I believe there's a right and a wrong. And I believe there's an up and a down and a left and a right and a black and a white. And I believe that there's absolute truth and I believe the lines are pretty clear. But the world says there is none. Second thing, religious pluralism. Religious pluralism. In other words, anything goes. John Stott says the most prized virtue is tolerance. Tolerance. Whatever's true for you is truth. Every religion is valid. And don't try to convert nice people. By the way, I must be at the end of that line. Okay. <laughs> Everybody's turning the page. <laughs> Jesus slam-dunked religious pluralism in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way. That means that every other way is a dead end. Do you believe that? He said, I am the truth. 
That means that everything outside of Jesus Christ as Lord and sole Savior is a lie. He said, I am the life. That means that everything else anybody believes is death. Jesus said, there is no religious pluralism. I am an exclusive Savior. And you don't get to God unless you come through me. There's moral relativism, there's religious pluralism, and you've already turned the page, and there are felt needs. Situation ethics, just go by feelings. Now, I'm afraid that one of the reasons why the church cannot deal with the culture that we live in is because, quite honestly, we want the culture to not be what it is. And we live in terms, sometimes in the church, we live in terms of how we would like the world to be rather in terms of how it really is. You know, we'd like the world, the world to be Leave It to Beaver and, and, you know, the Andy Griffith show and all. That's not the way the world is. If you think that's the way the world is, you need to start reading the paper and watching the news and, and just getting out in your neighborhood. The people studying the community of Albany tell us, now listen, folks, they tell us that in 10 years, in 10 years, are you listening? In 10 years, Albany will be like Chicago is today. Albany, little old Albany, southwest Georgia. You know what our problem is? You know why we can't reach this community? Because we got people still drawing lines that don't need to be drawn. We got folks walking around like this. There's no gang problem in Albany. There's no witchcraft problem in Albany. There's no racism problem in Albany. There are no problems in Albany. I live in a nice middle-class neighborhood. I drive a nice middle-class car. I go to a nice middle-class school. My kids wear nice little clothes. Everything's fine. Folks, you're going to have to take the blinders off and realize the town you live in is going to hell faster than we can possibly reach it. That's why we need to teach the Word and evangelize and win the lost and learn how to defend the faith because we live in a world that is corrupt and God has called us to take a stand in it. Now, that means we have to know what we believe, which comes down to doctrine. Let me give you three statements. First of all, doctrine is the only reliable foundation and motivation for an authentic New Testament life. Paul says in verse 3, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. I mean, you listen to some stuff, and I tell you what, it sounds like they had heartburn, not a Bible study. Verse 4, he says, which gives rise to mere speculations. That phrase literally means they furnish occasion for searching. Doctrine is the only reliable foundation and motivation for an authentic New Testament life. Then he talks about myths, false doctrines, fables, fiction instead of fact. And by the way, folks, there's a lot of false teaching out there today. I would never be so bold and so arrogant as to tell you I've got all the answers. I don't even know all the questions. But I can tell you this, there's a lot of false teaching out there on angels. Do you know what's real about angels according to the Word of God? Or do you just believe what all the New Age people are telling you about angels? About demons? About spiritual warfare? About what the Word of God says? about healing, about prosperity, about health, and about prayer. Some people think prayer is an arm twist of God to make Him do what you want Him to do. That's not what the Bible says prayer is. And you can find a lot of stuff that is religious, but it has nothing to do with the teaching of the Word of God. And so doctrine gives us a reliable foundation for our lives. Number two, doctrine weds belief and behavior. You see, our beliefs determine how we behave. And if you're believing speculation instead of revelation, you're in trouble. You must believe the revelation of the Word of God and you must study it for yourself. Doctrine weds belief and behavior. Number three, doctrine enables you to know what you believe and why. And there are two words under that. First of all, communication. 
But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. By the way, that ought to be the goal of every pulpit. That ought to be the goal of every Sunday school class. Anybody that teaches in this church, that ought to be their goal, that have love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussions. Let me just give you quickly those phrases. Pure heart, that has to do with your inner man. That's what you are on the inside. That's what you have to go to bed with at night. Your pure heart. The truth keeps our heart pure. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. Second phrase, a good conscience. Now, this means a little different than you think it means. It means a community conscience. A conscience of what's best for the community of believers. It's not just a good conscience for yourself. It, it is a community word. It's not about individual preferences. It's about the building up of the body, that we want to have a good conscience that builds up the body of Jesus Christ. And the third phrase he uses is a sincere faith. In other words, a faith that doesn't waver and doesn't stray. First of all, doctrine is for communication, and secondly, it is for correction. This command, which is a charge... I think King James may say charge. It's a military term. It's an order given by a superior officer. This command, I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight. Now, verse 18, he's talking about ground warfare. Verse 19, he changes his image and talks about naval warfare. For keeping the faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Doctrine is for two purposes. It's to communicate truth, and it's for correction. Now, folks, listen. This is just very simple. When God teaches you, He either teaches you by your study of the Word or He teaches you through discipline. That's what your parents taught you. You either learn to obey the word of your parents, or you learn to obey that switch they made you pull out in the yard that was never big enough. And they'd send you back to get another one. When God teaches us because we are His children, and if he, we are His children, we are in fact being disciplined, the Word of God says. And one of the reasons we know we're saved is because God's disciplining us when we're out of line. If God is communicating with us and if God is correcting us, then He is communicating by the Word. We're taught by the Word. But if we refuse to listen to the Word, then God deals with us in discipline. The word taught there in verse 20 means taught by means of discipline. And so let's go to these last two questions. Are you doing all you can to win the lost? Are you more concerned about ourselves? Are we more concerned about ourselves and our needs being met or about reaching others? Are you telling others about Jesus Christ? Do you know how to share your personal testimony? Do you have a burden for the lost? When's the last time you shared Christ with a lost person? Question number three. Are we a church committed to apologetics? Do we defend the faith and the gospel when it comes under attack? Can you defend the faith? Do you know what you believe and why you believe it? Now, let's read this last part together out loud. To be a biblically authentic church requires biblically authentic individuals. A church is the sum total of her membership. Therefore, if the Lord judged our church by your commitment to teaching the Word, evangelizing the lost, and defending the faith, how would He grade us? Only you can answer that question. I don't know how you're doing in those three areas, but you do. And tonight the invitation is very simple. We'll just sing one, two verses. If you're here and you're a guest tonight and you want to be a part of the church that is seeking as best we understand it to teach the Word, to win the loss, and to defend the faith, that we'd encourage you to prayerfully consider being a part of this church. I would also encourage you to do this. If you sized up this church and you decided that we were not teaching the Word, we were not winning the loss, and we were not defending the faith, I would leave as quickly as I could and go find a church that is. In fact, if you'll find it, I'll join it with you. 
because I believe that life is too short to be a part of a church that's not doing these things. I wouldn't want to pastor a church that's not doing these things, and I certainly wouldn't want to be a member of a church that's not doing these things. Are we teaching the Word? You know how do you evaluate a church? You don't evaluate a church by its buildings. You don't evaluate a church by its staff. You don't evaluate a church by its programs and by its budget. You evaluate a church by saying, do they teach the Word? Do they win the lost? And do they defend the faith? That's the kind of church that as a child of God you ought to be a part of. And there are churches like that all across this community. But if God has led you to this one, if this is the place where He's told you to be, then I want to encourage you when we stand in a moment and sing that you step out and you come and you say, I want to be a part of a church that teaches the Word and that wins the lost and defends the faith. I want to know how to be a part of a church like that. And we'll be glad to share that with you. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. And if that's your desire tonight, I'm going to ask you to step out and to come right now. Great is the Lord and worthy of glory. Great is the Lord and worthy of praise. Thank you for watching the Sherwood Hour from Sherwood Baptist Church in Albany, Georgia. We would enjoy hearing from you with your comments or how we may be able to meet a need in your life. If you'd like to get in touch with us, just write to the address that you see on the screen or call us at area code 912-883-1910. That's area code 912-883-1910. Now, if you'd like a copy of today's message, just call us or request it by mail. Be sure to ask for the tape number that you see at the bottom of your screen. Once again, we are delighted that you've joined us for the Sherwood Hour today and invite you to join us again real soon as we worship the true and living God together. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord.